Well, we got uh, we got slides running. Couldn't couldn't get the lights quite figured out though. But um, slides are good because I, I actually have some like long quotes I was going to read today. And I'm like, really? We're not going to have slides. So um, let's start with some questions, shall we? If God exists, why is there evil in the world? How can a good God allow suffering? How can we be expected to believe in a God who is good, a God who is just, when there seems to be injustice all around us? How is it that we can reconcile a good God with an evil and broken world? That idea of pain or suffering or evil or injustice is one of the biggest, if not the biggest obstacle as it relates to people who are like, you know, maybe I would consider the faith thing, but this is the one thing that holds me up. Or, or, or you know, maybe I am a person of faith, but like, this is the one thing that's pushing me maybe out the door a little bit. How do I reconcile good God, evil world? How do those two things go together? There, there's an argument and it goes somewhat like this. Woo! Hey! There it is. That, that God, if he's, if he's good, he would. And if he could, he would. That if God really is good, he would get rid of all evil in the world just by like snapping his finger and it's just gone. Or if, if he could, if he's capable, he would do that. And so obviously as we look around and we see, well, there's evil, there's injustice, there's pain, there's suffering. We draw the conclusion oftentimes that either, either A, um, maybe he's good, but he just can't do it. Which would mean he's not really God at all or he doesn't exist. Or maybe he can do it, he just won't. And so we draw the conclusion that maybe he doesn't exist and if he does, I want nothing to do with him. If he's good, he would. If he could, he would. Is he able? Is he real? But, there, but what I want us to kind of press into today is the idea that there is no rational or logical argument against the existence of the God of Jesus. Last week we talked about there's a lot of different ideas we have of God. But the God that Jesus revealed, who, who is spirit, he's immaterial, beyond space, beyond time, beyond matter, the uncaused cause, he's father, he's personal, and he is love. There's no rational argument against the God of Jesus based on injustice or evil in the world. That when people make an argument against God based on evil in the world, it is, it is usually an emotional argument. Which makes perfect sense. And it's completely understandable. Because whenever we see people around us going through pain, going through suffering, when we see evil, when we see injustice, or when we ourselves experience that, we get emotional. Like we, we get angry. We, we get sad. We feel grief. We feel uh, confusion. We feel loss. And like these emotions come bubbling to the surface, which is perfectly normal. That should happen. If you see evil and injustice in the world or experience it yourself and you're like, I feel nothing. Like that's a problem. So our emotions are a good, good thing. Balanced with this idea though that there's more to life than just our emotions. But I kind of want to touch on that and, and just say this morning, if you're struggling to reconcile a good God with an evil world or pain and suffering or injustice around us, and you're like, I can't make these two things meet. I want to say right from the get-go that what I'm going to say today, you're going to get to the end of it, and it probably, there's a good chance it will not be emotionally satisfying. Like we might get to the end of this and you're like, well, that doesn't make me feel any better, and I recognize that it won't. But I also want you to know that that's an okay place to be. That, that emotionally, as far, as far as what you feel, like you can, you can live in the tension of just, just being torn apart inside and yet still hold on to God. 
We see this throughout the Old Testament, especially like in the Psalms and in the prophets, where they're just like, God, where are you? Why have you forsaken me? My enemies are all around me. They're all going to kill me. God, I just wish I was dead. And like on and on, God, you, 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 you're not hearing me. You're not there. But yet they hold on to hope at the same time. And that's an okay place to be. So often we try to, we try to solve that. It's either I believe in God and so everything's fine all the time. Or when things aren't good, I'm like, I just throw the whole thing away. You can hold on to both at the same time. But know that what I'm going to say probably won't make us necessarily feel any better. So right from the get-go, that's not my intention. Um, what I want us to do to, to, together today instead is kind of explore two things. One, the assumption behind the, the arguments or, or the logic behind if, if evil exists, God can't be real or God can't be good. And, like, look at that logic and figure out, is that true or not? And then after that, I want to look at, okay, what does Christianity have to say about evil in the world? Like, how does the Christian faith reconcile things are broken, things are messed up? Because um, that's not a uniquely Christian problem. You know, sometimes that's thrown at people of faith or thrown at Christianity. Like, oh, yeah, well, you believe in God. How come there's evil in the world? That's not a problem that only the Christian faith has to, to deal with. Every single worldview, every single religion, whether a person's a religious person or not religious person, purely like secular, naturalistic, or somewhere on the religious scale, every worldview has to have an answer for what is going on with the world that we see around us and what's the solution to it. And so I want to look at those things this morning. Um, I have a bit of a thesis statement from the beginning, uh, kind of the overview. This is what the message is about, so you can tune out after this. I prefer you not to, but if you do, here's the one thing I want us to know today is that injustice or evil in the world is not an argument against God. It's actually an argument for God and a reminder that we need Him. It's an argument for God and a reminder that we need Him. So this idea of reconciling evil and God, how do we make those two things exist together? It's not a new problem. In fact, like pretty much ever since the church has been around 2,000 years, Jesus' death, burial, resurrection, the message goes out, the Jesus movement takes off, starts exploding, it starts just like going all around the known world. Ever since the beginning of the Jesus movement, of the church, the Christian faith, people have been struggling and trying to figure out how do we make sense of the world around us. Um, in fact, all the way back there, there's a really famous uh, philosopher and theologian, um, by the name of St. Augustine, maybe you've heard of him, maybe you haven't, like he, he's big in Christian circles, but he also just in terms of uh, philosophy and thinking about life, uh, very famous philosopher and theologian, lived in the late 300s, early 400s AD, and he, he wrestled with this idea, and he had these kind of three premises that he was trying to work through, he, he thought, okay, God created all things, that's number one, and number two, evil is a thing, and number three, then God must have created evil. If God created everything and evil is a thing, then God must have created evil. And then if you get to that point, how can I believe in a good God? Or how can I believe that God is real? As he worked through that, he came to this really important realization that number two is not exactly true. See, evil is a reality, but evil is not a thing. Evil is not a thing. It doesn't exist on its own. Evil can only exist as a lack of as a deficiency in, as a twisting of something good. It, it's a kind of a deprivation of something that's good. It's taking a good thing and like, and messing with it, of using it in the wrong way. C.S. Lewis, um, in his, his work, Mere Christianity, he, he uses this idea, gets at this idea of making an argument against dualism. So dualism is like this belief that, okay, there are two powers in the world. There's the good and there's the bad. They're like these equal and opposite forces. The good power, the bad power. A good and evil, yin, yang, light, dark kind of thinking. And he, he's, he's arguing that that can't actually exist because good must supersede evil. Here's what he says. He says, to put it more simply still, to be bad, he, talking about the bad power, 
He must exist, and he must have intelligence and will. But existence, intelligence, and will are all themselves good. Therefore, he, the bad power, must be getting them, those good things, from the good power. Even to be bad, he must borrow or steal from his opponent. So good, he's getting at this idea that good must precede anything that is bad. And then he goes on and says, and now do you begin to see why Christianity has always said that the devil is a fallen angel. It's not a mere story for children. It's a real recognition of the fact that evil is a parasite. It's not an original thing. The powers which enable evil to carry on are powers that are given to it by goodness. All of the things which enable a bad man, let me just pause there for a second, because when he said bad man to his original audience, they would have had one man in mind. Um, if you don't know, C.S. Lewis, Mere Christianity was turned into a written work, but it was originally a series of radio broadcasts that Lewis gave. He was from England, and he gave this during the height of World War II. So as London is being bombed every single night uh, by the, the Nazi Luftwaffe, he, he's taking to the radio, and so when he says a bad man, they are all like, Hitler, he's bombing us every single night. And so he says, think of that, but everything that makes a bad man bad, to be effectively bad, are in themselves good things. Resolution, cleverness, good looks, existence itself. And that is why dualism in a strict sense will not work. You can't have evil without good. Maybe in a little bit of language that connects with us a little bit better because he gives like this word picture. Frank Turek in his book Stealing from God says, evil is like rust in a car. We know a little bit about rust in a car here in Northeast Ohio. Evil is like rust in a car. If you take all of the rust out of the car, you have a better car. But if you take the car out of the rust, you have nothing. The rust can't exist without the car. Evil is like a cut in your finger. If you take the cut out of your finger, you have a better finger. But if you take the finger out of your cut, you have nothing. In other words, evil only makes sense against the backdrop of good. That's why we often describe evil as negations of good things. We say someone is immoral, unjust, unfair, dishonest, etc. And so evil can't exist unless good exists, but good can't exist unless God exists. In other words, there can be you no know, objective evil, like a, a standard a, above and beyond us that everyone says that is for sure evil. There cannot be objective evil unless there's objective good, a standard above us that says this is the standard of good. There can be no objective good unless God exists. And so if evil is real, and we all know that it is, then God exists. See, the reason we're even able to look at something and say, that is, that is unjust, that is evil, that is wrong. People should not be treated that way. We should not experience these things. Like, we shouldn't have to experience the pain and suffering. Like, that's not how it's supposed to be. The reason we can even make those statements is because there's a source of good and a source of love behind the universe. Last week as we talked about what is God, we talked about this one attribute, that God is spirit. That he's immaterial, spaceless, and timeless. That before time, space, or matter existed, God was. The uncaused cause of the, of, of the universe. And, and not only is he spirit, but he's love. And so before the universe began to exist, there was love and goodness and justice. It pre-existed the universe. It's the reason why instinctively there's certain things that we can see and we go, it's wrong. It's wrong, it's hurting people, it's, it's, it's tearing us apart. Evil only makes sense against the backdrop of good. Without the goodness of God, we have no basis to say right, wrong, good, bad, evil, unjust, just. And a God who's good, a God who's loving, a God who is just, is the God revealed to us in the person of Jesus. And it's the God revealed to us, we miss the significance of this, but this is... This God is really only revealed in Jesus. 
it's so crazy that we think it's just kind of like an intuitive thing. We're like, well, of course if God exists, he's good and he's loving and he's just. But I'm, I'm, I'm telling you, that, like, the reason we think that sitting in this room is because we are immersed in Western culture. And Western culture has been completely shaped by Christianity. I, I, it's crazy that we'll, we'll make the argument, hey, if, if evil, you know, the, the world is evil, so God must not exist. But we have this massive presupposition to make that argument. We assume that if God exists, he's good, and he's just, and he's loving. Where do we get that assumption from? Why do we have the assumption that if there is a God, he must be good? That is not an assumption that has been held through most of human history by most people throughout the world. That was an idea that was unique to Jesus. That Jesus brought that view of God into focus. I mean, it's not an idea that comes from nature. If you ever like look at nature, if you ever watch the Discovery Channel, you're, you'll discover very, very quickly, nature is not just, nature is not kind, nature is not fair, nature will kill you and kill you quickly. Okay, it's one of the reasons I like where we live, because I'm like, you know, not that many things that can kill me if I go outside. You travel somewhere else, we like go down south, you know, we go on a vacation, I'm like, Mm -mm, spiders and snakes and crocodiles, no, like no. But it's like nature is not kind. We don't get the idea of, hey, there must be something loving and just behind the universe from nature. Before the time of Jesus, nobody got that from the gods of the nations. The Greek or Roman pantheon of gods, the Egyptian gods, the barbaric gods, the Babylonian or Canaanite gods. The gods of the ancient world toyed with people. People were their slaves, they were their playthings, they did whatever they wanted with them. In fact, to, to the ancient people, when they experienced suffering, they thought that was evidence of the gods, that they had ticked them off. Like, oh no, an earthquake came through and killed half of our town, the gods, gods must be mad with us. Oh no, plague came through and wiped out three quarters of the population. Oh no, this volcano buried us all. Like, it must be the gods are mad at us. So, so they would go to the temple and they would offer sacrifices and bring things to try to appease the gods. The idea that God is loving and just was introduced by Jesus. And here's what makes that even more incredible, is that idea was introduced at a time when there was not justice and there was not dignity for hardly anyone. The time of Jesus, if you wanted to know what the right thing to do was, you looked to the person who had power. Might made right. If you were a person with power, if you were a person with influence, if you were a person with money, you got to determine right and wrong. Jesus steps onto the planet at a time where a huge portion of the population are slaves. He steps onto the planet at a time where nobody has dignity. He steps onto the planet at a time where women and children were viewed as, as nothing more than property. Women were property. Women had no rights. Children in many places, they didn't even name them for the first couple of years because there was a good chance they weren't going to make it. So what was the point? Jesus steps onto history at a time in the first century Roman Empire with a level of sexualization of culture that we can't begin to imagine. Or if you're a powerful, wealthy Roman man, you can pretty much have whoever, whenever, and use them for your own pleasure. Your slaves, women, children. And into that culture steps Jesus. And through his teaching and through his life, through his death, through his resurrection, shouts a message that every single human being on the face of the planet for all history has dignity and has value and has worth. It's not a dignity, it's not a value, it's not a worth that you earn or that someone has to give you. No, you are just born with it because you are made in the image of God. And it was Jesus' first century followers who picked up on this idea. Like the men and the women that were the eyewitnesses to Jesus and what he did, what he taught, they, they saw this. His first century followers, were in, they were treated incredibly unjustly. They were persecuted, they were tortured, they were thrown in prison. That when they started following Jesus, life got like demonstrably worse for them. Many of them lost their lives for what they believed. Their belief in a risen 
Jesus. And yet, in, in the midst of that, they continue to believe in and embrace a God who is loving and just. And so one of those followers is able to write something so powerful. And he, again, he, he was the only one of the original apostles who was not killed for their faith. But he did not have an easy life. He was imprisoned. He was tortured. He had seen all his friends die. He was exiled on a small island. His name is John. And he writes this. He says, dear friends, let us love one another. It's the marching order for followers of Jesus. Jesus said, this is how people are going to know who, that you belong to me, by how you love one another. That people should be able to identify Christians by, wow, you guys love each other really, really well. And there's a reason for that. John says, here's why we love one another, for love comes from God. Love finds its source, its, its origin in who God is. And everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. And whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. The idea of God is love comes from Jesus. The idea that every single person has dignity comes from Jesus. The basis of justice comes from Jesus. It comes from God that's revealed in Jesus. In fact, we, we could flip this idea that we're talking about and say it the other way around, kind of put the, the negative spin on it, is if you want to get rid of all injustice and all evil in the world, get rid of God. If you want to get rid of evil and injustice in the world, get rid of God, because once God is out of the picture, Injustice is out of the picture because justice is out of the picture. Once I have no objective standard to say this is good and this is not, this is just and this is not, it's anything goes. Once there's no standard, objective standard for justice and for love and for goodness, injustice and evil cease to exist. When God leaves the picture, see at best, at very best what we are left with and trying to determine justice is my justice and your justice. Nazi justice, and Taliban justice, and rich justice, and poor justice, and power justice, and street justice, and nature's justice, and progressive justice, and conservative justice. We, we get into this place where I have my justice, you have yours, and let's see what happens. And the course of human history has told us what happens. It just leads to more injustice and pain and evil and suffering. When we, when we reject God because of evil... Because of injustice, we don't solve the problem of evil and injustice. We lose the very definition of what they are. So justice, or injustice in the world, evil in the world is not evidence against God. It's not incompatible with a good God. It's evidence and a reminder that we need him. So what's the solution? Maybe you're like, okay, Phil, I'm tracking with you. I believe that, right? Like there's got to be an objective standard, yada, yada, yada. Okay, I, I got that. But, but what, what does the God of Jesus have to say about this? Like does he have a solution? Because, man, I, I'm looking around. I'm watching the news. I'm seeing my own family. I'm seeing my friends. I'm seeing just the, the garbage that we are going through. Does he have a solution? If this God really is love and he really cares about injustice, does he have a solution for the problem? And the answer is Yes. He absolutely has a solution for the problem. We just don't like it that much. He has a solution, but we oftentimes push back against it. Because Jesus brought us God is love, and we love that part. We're like, yes, God is love. He sacrificed. I mean, just sacrificial love, the most beautiful picture of love we can imagine is God giving his life. Like, God is love. And we, man, we love that part. Jesus revealed that to us. But that's not the only thing that he taught. The Jesus who showed us that God is love also taught us that God is 
just, that in the future there, there will be the very thing that we long for, that we desire, the very thing that we so often accuse God of neglecting, there will be justice for all. But here's the part that we don't like. Here's the part that bothers us. There will be justice, but there is no justice without judgment. There is no justice without judgment. And that's where our culture runs and goes, no, 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 no. I don't want, I don't want a judgmental God. I don't want a God who judges. I don't want a God who's going to be, I don't, I don't like judgy, judgy God. I just want God is love kind of God. But if you resist a God who embraces judgment, you don't really want justice. I mean, we, we understand that that's how this works. Like in, in our broken human systems, when someone is wrong, when someone is hurt, and we say, man, that, that person deserves justice, that group deserves justice, that family needs justice for what happened to them. We know that justice can't come without, even though it's broken and flawed sometimes, it can't come without our criminal justice system. It can't come without judges and courts and lawyers because somebody has to say, Here, here's the rules, here's the law, here's what was broken, here's what the punishment is, justice must come. And we understand that in our day-to-day lives. But man, when it comes to God, we're like, oh, I, don't like, I don't like God who judges. I don't like God who judges. But there is no justice without judgment. And listen, one of the reasons why we resist a God who judges is because within each of us, we kind of know like, we have this innate sense of right and wrong, good and evil. Like, there's that sense of, like, in life, like, ought and ought not. Like, like I know what I ought to do, and I know what I ought not to do, and sometimes nobody even needs to tell me. I just know. And so often we're like, but, yeah, I think I'm going to go with the ought not, because it just seems like more fun. Like, there's that sense of, ugh, and so we want to push back against a God who judges. And this is where our hypocrisy is so often exposed. Because when it comes to, to the God of love versus the God of justice, same God, we like to lean into different parts. That's where our hypocrisy is exposed because at the end of the day, so often, I want justice for you, for what you did. But I want mercy for me. Like what you did, man, that was wrong and, and you should pay for that. But for me, I mean, I, there's a reason I did that and, and don't you understand? And it was it's just please forgive me and usually I'm a pretty nice person. I'm a, it's like I want justice for you, but I want mercy for me. When we're left to define kind of justice on our own, it's, it's funny that we draw the line of what's right and wrong and just and unjust just so I'm inside of the okay side and you're on the outside of it. And so like we can define, we, we, we can define, so, so we'll say murder is wrong and rape is wrong and abuse is wrong and racism is wrong and absolutely all those things are. But then we'll go, yeah, but you know, the fact that I lie all the time, I mean, that's not that big a deal, right? I mean, you know, I just, I, I know, like, yes, I'm incredibly greedy and consumeristic, but and other people are going, are, are going without and are suffering, but it's okay. I mean, I'm good. I mean, like, yeah, yeah, rape and abuse are wrong, but hey, hey, I mean, you know, my sleeping around and just using people for their bodies, man, there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah, rape and abuse are wrong, but hey, my, man, my porn problem that feeds the, the, that industry of, of rape and abuse, that's okay, right? That's fine. See, we, we want to draw this line and say, I'm good, I'm all right. I want justice for you, but I want mercy for me. And this is why, man, this is, this is why the gospel, this is why the message of Jesus is the, is the greatest narrative on the planet. 
This is why the message of Jesus survived the first few centuries when historians look back and say there's no reason why the church should be here. There's no reason that this gospel message should have, should have survived. This is why it exploded. This is why it changed the Roman Empire and changed lives and changed the world. It continues to change lives today. Because, because when God saw the state of his world, when he saw what, what we did to his good world, God's like, man, you're awesome, and I'm, I'm love, and I'm justice, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to give you this perfect and beautiful gift of free will. So you, free will is a good gift. Now, I love you. Go and use it wisely. And what did we do? We said, screw you, God. I'm going to do what I want to do. And we have unleashed evil, and we have unleashed hell on the world. And God, even though he saw that, he saw the state of things. He was not willing to leave it and leave us like that. Into a broken, unjust, evil world, God did not send a judge. He sent a savior. Jesus says in John chapter 12, he says, I did not come to judge the world. Even though the world needs judgment. Like, even though we all recognize, look, evil, like something has to happen. Evil and pain and suffering and injustice. Something has to be done about this. And Jesus would agree, like, absolutely something has to be done about this. But I did not come to judge the world. I came to save it. I came to save it. And this idea is how the first century followers of Jesus who experienced pain and suffering that we cannot begin to imagine, this is how they held on to their faith. Because they saw with their own eyes the Jesus who walked this planet, who gave his life, who rose from the dead. And they saw, they saw this incredible act of justice and love. And so John... And we looked at what he wrote a few minutes ago, but he continues on in that thought. And he says, whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. But he, he continues his thought and says, but this, this is how God showed his love among this. This is what we have seen. This is what we have experienced. John would say, I'm not, this is not something I read. This is not something that somebody told me. But this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. And this is love. He says, you want to know what love is? You want to define love? I will give you the ultimate definition of love throughout all history. This is what perfect love looks like. It looks like this. It's not that we love God, but that he loved us. And he sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Here's what love looks like. Love looks like Jesus. He sent his son for our sins, for our evil. For our injustice, for the pain and the suffering that we have unleashed, he said, I'm going to take that on myself. You did it, but I'm going to pay for it. You broke it, but I'm going to fix it. And the earliest followers of Jesus, they saw this collision of the justice of God and the love of God at the cross of Jesus. Like the cross of Jesus reminds us that God brings justice. That there, there will be a solution. Like there is a solution. There is an answer to evil and to pain and to suffering and to death and to injustice. The cross shows us that. That Jesus took that evil into himself. He brings justice. But he gives grace. And he gives mercy. And he gives forgiveness. That Jesus is the basis of love and the basis of justice. And so I mean, we, can, we can hold to that. We know, we know that justice will come. We, we know that it has come. Like, like, it, like the solution is here. We're just waiting for the fulfillment. 
Like the, the hope of Jesus isn't, I hope one day things are going to get better. But something has happened that has been documented by the eyewitnesses. They said, we were there. We saw him die. We saw him alive again. The solution has come. We're waiting for the fulfillment. Justice will come, but we don't know when. It's not immediate. And this is why I said at the beginning, like this may make rational sense. But it doesn't make emotional sense. It doesn't always make me feel any better. Because I'd be like, yeah, I know, I know, I know that Jesus died. I know that he took the penalty for sin and for death and the brokenness in the world. But I still feel every bit of that. It makes rational sense. I mean, of, of all the worldviews, of all the different ways of seeing life, whether it's a religious one or not, like the answer for what do you do about pain and suffering and injustice, the, the, the message of Jesus, the Christian answer makes the most sense. I mean, just from like a naturalistic, uh, you know, secular worldview, say, well, there's no God, there's nothing, but just we're just stuff, we're just stuff, we're just chemistry, we're just biology, we're just, we're just physics, we're just walking meat suits. And in that worldview, there's, there's no evil, there's no good, we're just doing what our, what our chemistry and our biology tells us to do. There is no good, there is no evil. Eastern religions tell us that evil is an illusion. We, we looked at something like Hinduism and it's karma. Man, if your life sucks now, it must be your fault from what you did in a previous life. There's no hope for it ever getting better. And then on to the pages of history steps Jesus who reminds us that there, there is a God behind the universe who is good, who is love, who is justice. And out of his goodness and out of his love, he brings about a universe and packs it full of that goodness and love. And he puts people there and says, it's for you. It's made for you. You go and enjoy it. Rule and reign in my image. Use that free will that I have given you to bring about beauty and to bring about order and to bring about goodness. And again, we turn and we said, God, you know what? Screw you. Screw everybody else. I'm going to do what I want. I'm going to do what's best for me and forget everybody else. And we've unleashed evil on one another. And Scripture tells us that, that, that not only have we unleashed evil in ourselves and on one another, but now the entire universe is infected. It's got a sickness. And it's broken and it's full of death and it's full of destruction and it's full of hatred. But because God is love and because God is just, he said, I cannot leave it like that. And though you broke it, I'm going to fix it. That the God who is spaceless, timeless, immaterial, stepped into history at a place, at a time, in a physical body and said, I'm going to show you what love looks like. I'm going to show you what justice looks like. I'm going to go to the cross to fix everything that went wrong. Of all the different ideas in the marketplace of ideas of the world, of how could I orient my life and how could I live and what, what is the story that I'm going to live my life out of. We all live our lives out of a, some sort of a story. The Christian story, the story of Jesus is the best option. But it doesn't make me feel any better. Because we still experience injustice and evil in the present. And some of you may be going through it right now. In fact, it's not even that some of you may be going through it right now. I know that a lot of you are. Because you're my friends. And you're my church. And I hear your stories. And I know what's going on in your families. And I know what's going on in your life. And I know what's going on at work. And I know, we, we turn on the news and I know all of the stuff that, that we experience. And when I look to Jesus, I can tell you in all confidence that there will be justice, that there will be healing. I guarantee, I guarantee, I can promise you, I can promise you that your cancer will be healed, that your depression will be healed, 
I can promise that your anxiety will be healed. I can promise you that racism will end. I can promise you that, that we're going to stop killing each other, that there won't be murder, that there won't be wars. I can promise that we'll stop abusing children. I promise that all of that is going to come to an end. But I don't know when. I don't know when. Sometimes we experience it in the present, and it's awesome. And we call it a miracle. But oftentimes, we don't experience until the age to come. Jesus told a story one time about this idea. It's a story he made up, but he's proving a point. And he says, in a certain town, there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared what people thought. So there's just this terrible judge, right? Just... He doesn't have any respect for people or for God. He just does what he wants when he wants. And there was a widow in that town that kept coming to him with the plea, grant me justice against my adversary. Grant me justice against my adversary. So, man, she's going to this judge. She's, she's at his office. She's at his home. She's where he goes out to eat. She's just, I mean, just heckling him all the time. I need justice. I need justice. I need justice. Don't you know what's happened to me? Don't you know what I'm going through? And over and over and over. And Jesus says, for some time this judge refused. But he finally said to himself, even though I don't fear God, I don't care what people think. Yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually come and attack me. And so he's like, I, man, I don't fear God. I don't fear other people. I'm just all about myself. But, I, you know, I'm going to give her justice because I'm, I'm kind of just watching my own butt here. And Jesus says, listen to what the unjust judge Listen to what the unjust judge says. The unjust judge comes to this place and says, you will have Justice. And will not God, who is perfectly good and perfectly loving and perfectly just, bring about justice for his chosen ones? For those who cry out to him day and night. Who cry out to him day and night. God, what are you doing? God, when are you going to take this away from me? God, when are you going to heal my family member? God, when are you going to heal me? God, when are we going to stop seeing all of this pain? And night after night and day after day, God, when are you going to do something? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice. And quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, Jesus is talking about himself here. The, the, the title he most often used for himself was the Son of Man. So, so when the Son of Man comes, like Jesus, what are you talking about? You're, you're here right now. You're talking to these people. What do you mean when you come? You're already here. It's when he comes again. When he returns. In that moment when injustice and evil and pain and suffering are eradicated forever. It says, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Will he find faith? Jesus is saying, look, justice is going to come. Healing is going to come. Life is going to come. But will you be faithful in the meantime? Well, we, like his first century followers who saw pain and suffering, who experienced things that we can't even begin to imagine, and yet, yet they, they trusted entirely that he was good, that he was just, that he was loving because of what they saw. Will we be faithful? Will we in the same way say, you know what, regardless of my circumstances, regardless of what's going on in the world around me, that's not what I'm anchoring my hope to. That's not what I'm anchoring my life to. That's not what I'm anchoring my trust to. My trust alone is in the person of Jesus. His life, his death, his resurrection. 
And that's not something that I'm hoping will happen. That's something that has happened in history. Justice will come, but will we be faithful? Evil and injustice in the world. It's not an argument against God. They're evidence that we need him. We need a good and just God. We need his grace. We need his mercy. We need his love. But evil and injustice in the world are a nagging reminder of how broken things are. They are a daily reminder that there is a, there is a longing, there is an ache within us that whenever, whenever we look at how things are, we look at what we're experiencing, there's just this like, oh, are you kidding me? We have this, this longing, this, this ache. We have a longing and an ache to see justice and to see healing and to see goodness in ways that, if we're honest with ourselves, we know aren't even a possibility. Like we have a longing for, for justice and for, for, for healing. And like, like we, we long to see, you know, world peace. There's no more murder. There's no more, no more war. But we know like that's never going to happen. Like we have a longing to see every disease and every sickness eradicated. But we know it's never going to happen. There's a longing within us for a sense of justice and healing that only a good and loving and just God can provide. There's a longing in us for something more. C.S. Lewis put it perfectly. Maybe you've heard this quote. He said, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is I was made for another world. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, if there's a sense of a longing for, for goodness and for love and for justice that I just can't seem to find anywhere, I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy. The most probable explanation is I was made for another world. And Jesus says, you were made for another world. And you were made for another world. And you were made for another world. Every single one of us. He says, this isn't how it was supposed to be. You were not made to experience this pain. You were made for another world. And we're reminded of that every day. Every day we're reminded of what could be. We're reminded of what should be. And Jesus says, have the confidence to know one day it will be. It will be. And so God, we thank you for that. We thank you for the hope, for the promise that is found in your son Jesus. We thank you that the reason that we, we have hope, the reason we know there is justice, the reason we can be confident that that evil will be eradicated, that pain will be eradicated, that suffering will be no more. The reason that we know that is not something that will happen, but something that has. Jesus, we trust in your death and your resurrection. I would thank you for the people who were there who saw it and their testimonies that we have. Thank you for preserving them to this day. God, I want to pray for those who are who are here, who are watching, who are experiencing evil, pain, suffering, injustice in a very real way right now. God, I pray for healing in physical bodies. Lord, I pray for, for healing and for healing of depression, for healing of anxiety for those that are sitting in this room. I pray for healing of, of cancer. 
Lord, I pray for justice to come for the people who are losing their lives even as we speak around the world. God, I pray you would just give us the confidence to know that we can trust that it will come. That we can hold to you. And as we wait, Lord, our prayer, our cry is continually, come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus.